You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss announced on Tuesday he's backing a bill that would give the responsibility of redrawing political maps to the nonpartisan Legislative Reference Bureau. Wisconsin Democrats put forth similar plans in 2019 and 2021. At the time, legislative Republicans rejected the idea, arguing that the power of redistricting should stay in the hands of elected officials. The announcement from Voss comes as a new legal challenge to the state's current maps could be decided by the state Supreme Court's newly liberal majority. Voss has floated the idea of impeaching Justice Janet Protasiewicz if she doesn't recuse herself from cases on that issue. The new plan would require support from Governor Evers, who's been critical of it so far. There's a lot going on. We're talking about how nonpartisan redistricting could work and what it might mean for the balance of power in the Capitol. And we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. What do you think of the idea of a nonpartisan group drawing new electoral maps? Do you want your state representatives and senators to support this idea? What do you make of the timing of all this, and what questions do you have? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at wpr.org. John Johnson is a research fellow in the Lubar Center for Public Policy Research and Civic Education at Marquette University's Law School. John, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me. Well, this um, people may have been seeing headlines about nonpartisan redistricting, Iowa-style redistricting. There's a lot of potential outcomes in this bill if it goes through. Could you give us the simple version of how this would work in the plan put forth by Republicans? Uh, yeah, so the simple version still isn't yeah, that the smooth version <laughs> yeah yeah okay so what this bill would calls for is having the legislative reference bureau the lrb create nonpartisan maps for the state which they would do by following the existing goals for redistricting in wisconsin districts need to be contiguous they should be compact in some way um, and they should keep together municipalities when possible so the lrb would try to do those things they would make maps and the legislature would have to vote up or down and the governor would have to sign or veto uh, that legislation. They couldn't amend it at that time. Uh, if they voted it down or the governor vetoed it, it would go back to the LRB who would try again. Um, and then there would be a second vote. And if they voted it down a second time, the LRB would try a third time. But on that third go around, the legislature would have the power to pass whatever maps they wanted. They wouldn't actually need to vote on the LRB proposal. They could just substitute their own maps and the governor could accept or veto those however they wanted. So really this plan, it doesn't require that there would be nonpartisan maps. It just means that the government, the legislature and the governor would have to explicitly reject or accept some proposed nonpartisan maps. Um, so it doesn't actually change the situation too much from what we have now in a situation where you have unified government like in 2011, uh, the party that controlled the legislature and the governor's mansion would still be able to pass whatever they wanted. And in a situation like what you have now, where um, there's divided power, you could still just as easily have a situation where um, the governor and the legislature are unable to come to agreement on maps. And this law doesn't address that situation. It doesn't say what happens next. Whereas in Iowa, the law is clear that um, 
if the legislature and the governor are unable to pass these L these LSB as the agency is named in Iowa maps, um, it goes to the Iowa Supreme Court. Uh, the bill proposed in Wisconsin does not address that situation, and it leaves this kind of murky status quo that we're in right now. And the status that we're in right now is our current maps are being challenged, and that case could go to the state Supreme Court. So theoretically, if we pass this plan and we get into one of those three votes and you're out type situations, could it go back into the courts? Yes, that's exactly right. Hmm. Could be federal courts, could be state courts. It's unclear. And this is a pretty significant change in position from state Republicans who for years have opposed the idea of nonpartisan redistricting. As I mentioned before, Democrats have put forth plans uh, very recently um, that would bring a similar type of system to Wisconsin. How different is this bill from Republicans compared to what Democrats have been proposing? Yeah, so there's a huge difference between this bill and the 2021 bill that Democrats put forward. It had a little bit of bipartisan support, but it was essentially a Democratic bill in 2021. Um, in that bill, it said on the third go around, the legislature could override the LRB proposed maps with a 75% supermajority. This Republican bill only requires a simple majority of 50 votes. So uh, the difference is the Democratic map said, well, you either have these nonpartisan maps drawn by the LRB, or you have bipartisan maps agreed to by a supermajority that has to contain members of both parties. Whereas this current plan put forward by the Republicans says, after you reject the nonpartisan maps, the legislature is free to pass whatever maps they want along a simple party line vote. We're talking with John Johnson right now, research fellow in the Center for Public Policy and Civic Education at Marquette University, Looking at the latest uh, twist in Wisconsin's redistricting story, a Republican bill that would create a process for nonpartisan redistricting in the state, we're taking your calls and questions, too, at 800-642-1234. Uh, John, the sponsors of this bill have compared it to Iowa, a place where um, Speaker Robin Voss said this has been implemented flawlessly. What have we seen in Iowa? What's gone well? What's been a challenge to this type of process? So, yeah, they do have this in Iowa. They've had it for quite a long time. I believe it was the first independent redistricting kind of system in the country, um, if memory serves me right. I believe it started around 1980 in Iowa. So they've been doing it for some time. Uh, and in situations where the uh, the government was divided, you know, one party held the governor's mansion, another the legislature, the legislators, legislature's chambers were divided. I think often the um, nonpartisan maps could be a, a something that the two parties could agree on. In this past cycle, they had um, unified party control, Republican control of the state government, and they rejected the first version that their Legislative Services Bureau drew. And on the second go, go around, those maps were uh, more favorable to Republicans and they did pass them. Um, the, the, the another advantage that the Iowa law has compared to the one that was put forward here in Wisconsin is that it, it clarifies what happens if there isn't agreement um, between the governor and the legislature. Uh, it, it goes immediately to the Iowa Supreme Court, who then has a statutory deadline by which they will draw maps. And um, oh, sorry, John, my, my understanding, too, is that the 
the Iowa um, system has some standards in place for how districts can be drawn regarding county lines and basically keeping them more square and not so cracked and packed, as they say. Are there going to be similar uh, standards in place in this bill for what the Legislative Reference Bureau could do with boundaries? Yeah, the standards are, from my perspective, pretty good in the in, in for what the LRB should consider. Um, they can't think about where incumbents live. They can't think about what the, the patterns of the vote are. Um, they're only allowed to consider demographics uh, to the extent required by civil rights legislation. Um, so really, it is a set of neutral criteria uh, for drawing compact districts. This bill even defines compactness using a, a reasonable mathematical standard for that. Uh, so those are all things that this Wisconsin bill accomplishes. It's just that it doesn't actually require that one of those nonpartisan maps be chosen. Let's go to our calls now. We have Jeff with us in Superior. Jeff, what's on your mind? Hi, good afternoon. Uh, good topic. Uh, this is something we do need to discuss across the state. And so in my opinion, and I grew up here in northern Wisconsin. We used to hear how um, power was concentrated in Madison and Milwaukee, and they got whatever they wanted. But when we did the recent redistricting, we actually got results up here in northern Wisconsin. And you can you can say whether or not that's because of Republican leadership. But as a citizen, we actually got more uh, revenue sharing. We got more for schools. We got funding for our state parks. It's been a positive for the people of Wisconsin up here when they drew those redistricting maps most recently. I hope we don't go back to the old way of thinking that says you know, Madison doesn't care about us up here in northern Wisconsin. Jeff, thanks for the call. Uh, John, Jeff is seeing a benefit for his area in northern Wisconsin with the new and current maps. Um, You've done a lot of data crunching on what maps mean for the power that different parties have. What have you seen for um, kind of those northern Wisconsin areas that Jeff lives in for for representation in the capital? Yeah, some some seats did change hands uh, between the parties in in um, northwestern Wisconsin. So perhaps that's what he's referring to. Some of the boundaries were drawn um, in a way that shifted some historically Democratic leaning seats closer to the Republican Party and some Democratic incumbents uh, didn't run for reelection there. And there were some some changes. Yeah. And. uh John, we uh, the timing of this is is interesting because just a week ago this week, Speaker Voss was floating the idea of impeaching Justice Janet Protasiewicz because of her former comments on the maps being rigged, saying that that should cause her to recuse herself from cases involving the maps. Um, what do you make of the timing on this and how it would or wouldn't involve the state Supreme Court with a newly liberal majority? I'm not sure what to make of it. You know, obviously, it's quite an about face for the Republican leadership in the state legislature. They've been pretty explicitly on the record opposed to this kind of legislation in the past. Um, But the thing I keep coming back to is the way this this legislation still gives the legislature a lot of latitude to do what it wants. You know, it does require them to at least twice consider something proposed by the nonpartisan LRB redistrictors, but it does not require that they actually choose one of those laws or one of those maps, I mean. And that's in contrast to other states that have independent redistricting commissions that actually ultimately choose the maps. 
John Johnson is our guest, research fellow in the Lubar Center at Marquette University Law School. We're talking about Wisconsin's redistricting process and whether maps might be ruled on by the state Supreme Court, a non-districting or nonpartisan commission under a new Republican bill. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. How would you feel about a nonpartisan agency drawing Wisconsin's electoral maps? Do you think this should stay in the hands of lawmakers instead? What questions do you have about this bill and what a different style of map drawing would mean? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation in just a minute here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter in today for Rob Ferret. Right now, we're picking up our talk with Marquette University Lubar Center Research Fellow John Johnson about the latest in Wisconsin's redistricting story. A new Republican bill would put the process in the hands of a nonpartisan group subject to legislative approval. We're taking your calls, your questions, comments at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Now, John, going back in time a couple years, there were... I think up to seven maps being considered um, as we were going through the redistricting process. Originally one from Governor Evers' office was chosen, then kicked back by the U.S. Supreme Court, and then GOP-backed maps were chosen. I know we right. don't have um, new maps in front of us. This bill has not even passed yet. However, what are you thinking about as someone who studied this so much? Like, what would, um, What could a nonpartisan map mean for the balance of power in the capital. So if you took these standards that are already in Wisconsin law and drew, let's take the assembly, for example, you know, the 99 districts uh, following the rules about making sure they're contiguous, obviously they got to have equal population, um, trying to keep them compact, avoiding crossing municipal boundaries where possible, avoiding crossing county boundaries where possible. You could take all of those standards that have been established for a long time and you would still end up with a map that benefited Republicans during a 50-50 election year. So if the vote was evenly split across the state just because of where Democrats and Republicans live, you would end up with this set of really heavily Democratic seats in Madison and Milwaukee that don't really have um, an analogous group of really Republican seats elsewhere in the state. Um, and so in that 50-50 election year, like we so often see here, I would still expect Republicans to win, you know, maybe 55, 56, 57, 58 uh, seats in in the assembly on, in this neutrally drawn way. And that's not even thinking about incumbency advantage, which they would have more of since they have more incumbents. Um, so yeah, this, this, uh, this would not probably change which party controls the legislature. But it would create, I think, more competitive seats um, and just more legislators who are aware that they might actually lose their next election, which is something we have very little of right now. Let's go back to our phones. We have Joe in Lacrosse with us. Hi, Joe. Hi. I was wondering what things should be considered when drawing these districts. Uh, you mentioned uh, not uh, wasting any of a town's uh, votes by spreading them out too much, concentrating the votes in a, in a town. And you mentioned the government, federal government um, requiring certain races, I assume, be, uh, being uh, considered. 
what other things should be considered to make it a fair way to, to uh, distribute votes? Joe, thank you for the call. Uh, John, what do you think? This is such a great question, and people don't agree. So, you know, there's one school of thought that says fair maps are maps that you draw to try to keep communities of interest intact so that, you know, your town should be drawn into one district because as a town you have uh, similar needs, similar, you know, kind of uh, interest in being represented at the state level. Um, And so that's one idea is that you should just draw it not thinking about party at all, just about where these communities of interest is the term you often see are. Um, And that's what Wisconsin law talks about doing right now, though it doesn't define a lot of the terms. It just says things like should be compact um, without saying exactly what that means. Um, And other people say, no, a map should be drawn to maximize as many competitive seats as possible. They say democracy works better when there are more seats that a Democrat or a Republican could both realistically win so that the representatives have to be more responsible to the voters is the thinking there. That's not what Wisconsin law says now. It doesn't say anything about maximizing competitiveness. But to some people, a fair map is a competitive map. And to other people, a fair map is a map that's drawn without thinking about Democrats or Republicans at all. And uh, I think it's important for people to realize that in a state like Wisconsin, where Republicans and Democrats are not distributed the same way around the state. Um, Those two things are not the same. A neutrally drawn map is not the same thing as a competitive map. Not necessarily. And Wisconsin is also a slightly more diverse state than Iowa. Does that come into play here? Probably, though, I haven't spent enough time looking at the sort of distribution of voters in Iowa to, to be able to speak to that. Sure. We have another call. Uh, Tom is with us in Coloma. Hey, Tom. Hi, can you hear me? We can, loud and clear. Uh, I may be losing coverage, so I'll be brief. Uh, I would prefer to see independently drawn maps, but I think that if the legislature has a chance to vote twice to override those maps, it would be meaningless because the party in power could simply have two votes, and that would be the end of it. Uh, And those are my comments. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, John, what do you think of Tom's idea of the legislature not having as much of a chance to reject those maps? You know, there's two, there's many examples of states that do it differently than this proposed bill. Missouri has an interesting uh, process I was just reading about recently. So in Missouri, they come up with a different commission to draw the assembly maps and a diff- and another commission to draw the state Senate maps. Um And those commissions are composed of an equal number of Democrats and Republicans. And 70% of them have to agree on a map. So like you have to have agreement of both Democrats and Republicans on that commission as to what um, the map is going to be. So that's not a nonpartisan commission. It's a very distinctly partisan one. People have a party affiliation to get on that commission, but then they have to agree in a bipartisan fashion to what the maps will be. If they fail to agree Uh, by a specified date, then the state Supreme Court of Missouri appoints a commission of appellate judges to just draw maps. Um, And so that's how they do it there. The legislature actually isn't involved at the state legislative level. They do something similar in Michigan. They actually have this kind of funny, almost lottery process for coming up with um, citizens to be on the map drawing commission, four Democrats, four Republicans, five independents, And those uh, members have to choose a plan by majority vote 
that includes at least two people from each of those pools. So at least two of the Democrats, two of the Republicans, and two of the independents. So, you know, other states have models that don't involve the legislature that actually have, you know, um, citizens or people who aren't elected uh, to the state government choosing these maps in uh, enforced bipartisan way. So, you know, that that's an alternative to, to this uh, proposed bill. As we've been talking about, this current bill would put the map drawing in the hands of the Legislative Reference Bureau. Could you uh, remind us who that group is and what they currently do? They are a group of civil servants who, an agency that uh, I believe mostly reports to the legislature and provides technical assistance and analysis of what bills would mean. So they work in a, in a sort of a strictly nonpartisan way, providing useful analysis. I really rely on their descriptions of bills that are proposed to help me understand exactly what's happening there. Sometimes the, you know, the legalese can be a little difficult to decipher, but that's their job. To be honest with you, I, I, uh, I really, if this, if this bill becomes law, I don't, I don't think you could pay me enough to have that job at the LRV drawing these maps. <laughs> that sounds, sounds like a real pain. Well, John, oh, there. Can I say one other thing, just on a technical note, sure that thing. this bill does that uh, is really good? Is it requires that the LRB uh, assemble their nonpartisan maps out of the ward boundaries that are drawn by local elections administrators. Um, which is something that really makes life easier for these people on the ground in every city, town, or village in Wisconsin who are having to like actually sit down with a map and draw where the ward boundaries are going to be that decide where people are going to vote. Um, the way we do it now is sometimes the ultimate maps disregard those initial ward boundaries that are drawn by local administrators. And so the poor local administrators have to go back and redraw their wards after this is all said and done, which is just a lot of a lot of unnecessary work for them. They already, you know, those local administrators have a better sense of where the natural contours of neighborhoods are than anybody else. And so um, my view is that we should use those as the building blocks that larger districts are assembled out of. Well, we'll leave it there for today, John, but a lot more coming on this story. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. John Johnson is a research fellow in the Lubar Center at Marquette University Law School. He talked with us about the latest twist and turn in Wisconsin's redistricting story. You can check out how that became such a hot political issue by listening to the WPR Reports podcast, Mapped Out, and follow the WPR News Department for ongoing coverage. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter, in for Rob Ferret. Now, after years of shrinking attendance, movie theaters are starting to see a rise in ticket sales. That's due in part to the success of several major blockbusters over the summer. Here's CBS New York's Ali Ballman reporting from the opening weekend of Barbie and Oppenheimer. There is a parade of pink walking into the movies this weekend. It's the fun energy, the fashion, the like bubbly spirit. It's just like nostalgia as a kid. With opening weekend for both Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. And for Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Let's go recruit some scientists. Together we get Barbenheimer. But can movie theaters sustain all the energy and excitement of a Barbenheimer summer? Or will people return to the comfort of their homes to watch movies on streaming? Our next guest has a few ideas for how movie theaters can bring the crowds back. And we want to hear from you, too, at 800-642-1234. Have you gone to see a movie at the theater lately? What was your experience like? Are you someone who prefers to watch from home on streaming? If so, what, if anything, would it take to get you back to the cinema? 
Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Jocelyn Sapeniak-Gillies is an Associate Professor of English and Director of Film Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Jocelyn, it's great to have you back. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Dean. Well, Barbenheimer was the big movie event of the summer, and it did get a lot of people back into theaters. What do you think worked? What clicked? Yeah, it really was this major cultural phenomenon this summer in a way that we haven't seen in, well, in, in certainly in recent memory for me. I think what clicked, and I really felt it too, you know, I have some critical distance as a professor of film studies and as somebody who writes about um, the history of movie theaters, but I felt it too when I was in the audience for Barbie that it just felt like something that everybody was participating in. Um, it was a real moment where you had that experience of being in public with people that you don't know, but where you're all engaged in the same thing. You're all excited about the same thing. And that's what I think really did it. It wasn't about any kind of like new high tech um, uh, kind of, uh, experience in the movie theater. It wasn't about like some great new concessions. It was just about the thrill of being there with other people and the excitement of um, being in the movie theater together again. And what do you think as you have some some time to look back on your Barbenheimer experience, what do you think <laughs> movie theaters and the theater industry can can learn from this and maybe replicate in the future? Yeah, what I'm really hoping that movie theaters can learn from this is that we don't really need to treat audiences like they're totally gullible and totally stupid all the time, right? Maybe we can provide a relatively intelligent film, you know, something that is both fun and clever and a little bit smart and trust that that will bring people back together and that people actually just want to experience things together. They want that real purity of film experience again. And we can provide that just by giving pretty decent movies that aren't like totally dumbed down for the entire population. And looking at past year's top 10 grossing films, there's a lot of sequels. There's a lot of Marvel superhero movies. And that's also the case this year, but Barbie's number one, Oppenheimer's up there. There are original films too. Do you think there is, uh, we're seeing kind of an appetite for something new and fresh? You know, I really, really hope that's the case. Let's of course remember that Barbie is still based on, you know, on an already existing toy, something that has a lot of cultural, um, cultural cachet already. So it is something recognizable. I would say it's not entirely separate from the other kind of franchise films that we see because, you know, it's an existing property, right? It's, it's an already extant uh, creative property. But there's something different and, um, you know, kind of extravagant done with it. Uh, one of the things that I really loved watching Barbie was how beautiful the set design was. It was so creative. It wasn't really focused on CG. It was focused on physical sets. Um, that gave it a real kind of depth, um, a real feeling of immersion that we haven't seen in a really long time. And so I'm hopeful that recognizing that kind of artistry, that kind of craftsmanship um, in film as opposed to just the kind of um, uh, Marvel movies where everything sort of looks the same. There's all of these boxes you have to tick. It has to fit into a larger um, canon of product. I'm hoping that we can see a return to that kind of um, artisanal and craft, uh, really craftsmanship work um, in cinema. You mentioned the importance of familiar, you know, products, IPs for people to, or intellectual properties for people to latch onto in the, in the movies. Is it possible that we're going to see 
a new type of MCU, the Mattel cinematic universe <laughs> rather than the Marvel? I mean, I think that's already happening. And it's in a way, it's kind of a shame, right? Because Barbie was so successful and Mattel negotiated some outrageous amount of um, of the box office for Barbie too. I can't remember exactly the amount that they got, but it was it recently came out that um, in creating this film, they had negotiated a certain um, percentage. So Mattel's making money hand over fist. They've already announced other um, movies that will be coming up um, in the Mattel universe. I think that that's the wrong lesson from Barbie because sure, you might make some money. Um, you might uh, kind of have an immediate like brief influx of cash, but that's a little bit gratuitous. I think the lesson of Barbie is really that people want to enjoy seeing something a little bit new, a little bit different, and they want to enjoy seeing it with um, with a lot of people who are in- experiencing that same kind of sense of joy and excitement um, together. We're talking with Jocelyn sapaniak Gillies, Director of Film Studies at UW-Milwaukee, about where theaters go after the Barbenheimer summer and how to keep people coming back to the cinema. And Jocelyn, I want to look back in time a little bit now because theaters now are dealing with the threat of streaming. They're bouncing back from the pandemic. But it's not the first time that they face challenges. I'm thinking back to the 1950s when people started to have a television in their homes. How did the theater industry respond at that point? Yeah, I mean, the history of um, movie theater um, attendance, the history of exhibition, as we call it, um, is a history of constant threat, constant failure, um, and constant fear, because there's consistently this um, this moment of crisis where um, something is going to, uh, to take away all the box office numbers. This starts as early, of course, as the Great Depression. We have never returned to the same um, percentage of um, attendance with weekly attendance that we had um, prior to the Great Depression. So from that moment on, we see these continual moments of crisis in the movie theater industry in exhibition, um, where theaters are theater owners are really freaking out about um, people no longer wanting to come to the movies. This really comes to a head in the 1950s when television uh, really takes the country by storm. Of course, television had been available before then, but the 50s, it really becomes um, more widely um, economically available to a majority of the population. And exhibitors are terrified. They think, well, nobody's going to come in anymore. Everybody's just going to sit at home in their comfortable chair. They're not going to bother like with the annoyance of the crowds. So they come up with all sorts of some are respectable ideas and some are completely outlandish ideas for bringing people back into the theaters. Um, the, one of the first big ones is the introduction of 3D, which has a brief kind of 18-month <laughs> um, process in the theater because people actually didn't like 3D that much. Um, but 3D has a big moment. Expanded screens, screens get bigger and bigger and bigger in the 1950s because that's something that television can't do. Television at that time, especially, could not provide you with um, anything much larger than like your standard um, square television set in your living room. But a theatrical screen could expand and it could expand horizontally. So we see that happening um, really significantly throughout the 1950s. And then we see um, really creative, hilarious people like William Castle, who was a gimmick filmmaker, who would make these kind of silly horror movies, but he had all these gimmicks that came along with them, such as um, for his great movie, The Tingler, which if you haven't seen- Oh yeah, The Tingler. The Tingler's amazing. It'll get you. (laughs) It'll get you. And it was shown with Percepto, which was basically like a little electric shocker in certain seats (laughs) in the audience that would actually shock people at certain moments of like the film's climax. So there's all sorts of like 
Some are, you know, kind of impressive technological feats. Some are just kind of ridiculous, like skeletons flying through the air. But you're still not going to get that at home. Let's go to our calls now. We have Laura with us in Manitowoc. Hi, Laura. Hi. What did you want to tell us about? It was movie theaters. Um, I am one of those people after many, many years of not going to see a movie did go back to see Barbie and uh, really enjoyed it. And in talking to people about that, I found that amongst my friends, a lot of the reason um, that people weren't going to go see it, even though they wanted to, was cost. So a lot of those people are waiting to, um, you know, stream it or see it some way that's going to cost less. So I think that's one thing. You know, movies are so expensive. Um, But for me personally, what I'd like to see, what would really get me into the theater more would be if – if we could um, participate. Oh, Laura, you, your signal broke up there for us, but thank you for the call. Uh, Jocelyn, what did you think about what Laura had to say in terms of cost and that being a barrier to entry coming into the movie theater? Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, and when we think about going to the movies, of course, it's not just the price of the ticket, it's the price of the concessions. And the concessions is where um, movie theaters traditionally make the majority of their money. So that's why they're so expensive. Um, but even if we're just looking at the price of a ticket, it's expensive, but it can be worth it if you get a really great experience. And by great experience, I don't just mean like the quality of the film. I mean the quality of the actual movie theater. I mean the quality of the projection. Um, And one of the things that I would really love to see a return to would be something like unionized projectionists. For a very long time, being a projectionist in a movie theater was was a really good job. And it was a good job because there was a union that you could be a part of. And that ensured, of course, good wages. It ensured certain um, working conditions. Now, projection is kind of farmed out to um, anybody who works in the movie theater. And, you know, I love movie theater workers. I am not down on any movie theater workers. You are all my heroes. But there should be training. You know, there should be um, there should be the notion that projection is a respectable and respected career. And right now, with the utter corporatization of movie theaters, we just don't really have that anymore. So I think if we're paying a lot for a ticket, we should expect to see really beautifully projected films with really exquisite sound. And then the ticket doesn't seem quite so expensive because it's about that entire really excellent technological experience. Jocelyn Zapani Achilles is with us, Associate Professor of English and Director of Film Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We're talking about how movie theaters can keep up the momentum of getting people into the theater. And we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Have you seen any movies in the cinema lately? What brought you there? What kind of movies would bring you back if you haven't been there yet? Or do you prefer watching from home and why? Let us know at 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter. We just heard Lizzo's song Pink from the new Barbie movie, which broke box office records this summer. And we're talking about what brings people into the movies and how movie theaters can keep people coming back. Jocelyn Sapaniak-Gillies from UW-Milwaukee is with us, and we're taking your calls as well. 
I want to go next to Mike in Sheboygan. Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, I was hoping that the uh, movie about Gold in My Ear would uh, have uh, legs outside the Milwaukee area, but apparently the Marcus decided to limit it. But it, uh, it's the kind of movie that I think, uh, you know, a good adult uh, movie like uh, like Oppenheimer uh, would be interesting since Gold in My Ear was raised in Milwaukee. And I, I also um, remember a movie that's now 30 years old that also had a profound impact on me, and that was Schindler's List. Uh, movies like that, I think, are, are geared towards people who are a little more mature than, than just the, uh, you know, the, the movies that are animation. So uh, Gold in My Ear uh, movie and bring back the Schindler's List. Sure, Mike. Thanks for the call. Uh, Jocelyn, what do you think about more movies perhaps being aimed at older crowds? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen with the success of Oppenheimer this summer, which, okay, so it wasn't as successful as Barbie, but it still was pretty successful. It was kind of a pretty big deal. I think there's always a market um, for movies targeted toward adults. What is interesting about Oppenheimer's success is that it was a summer release. And we'll see a lot of the time that box office numbers will be higher for more um, adult-oriented films in the fall, in the winter, in that kind of lead-up to the Oscar season. That's typically when these sort of prestige pictures are reserved for the studios to release in the hopes of getting those Oscar nominations. So I think the lesson to be learned from Oppenheimer this summer is that um, an adult-oriented film can actually be successful in the summer blockbuster moment. It just has to be marketed um, in the right way. Hilariously, I think that so much of Oppenheimer's success, of course, has to be linked up with its association with Barbie and that that wonderful kind of absurd joke that the entire country decided decided to participate in, (laughs) which I am just like utterly delighted by. Mike, thanks for the call. Let's go next to Scott in Green Bay. Hi, Scott. Hi there. For years, I worked at the Green Bay Film Festival, and we brought in many independent films to our festival. But um, we struggled when COVID hit and and, and attendance started to drop with how could we bring people into the festival when some of these films they could just stream at home. And one of the points that I kept highlighting was the, the interaction and discussing the films and talking about what you had just seen. When you're at home watching a film by yourself, or with, you know, media family, maybe I'll talk to one or two people, but if you go out to a theater or to a festival, you're amongst a group of people and you can talk about that film and what you just witnessed. And so I, you know, sometimes when it comes to a theater, what can you do that differentiates the, the experience at the theater versus just streaming at home? Scott, thank you for the call. Uh, Jocelyn, what do you think? Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Um, Maybe we're not going to have conversations with every stranger we're around at a movie theater, right? Like that, that might be a little bit weird. But you do have the opportunity to have those moments in the lobby where, you know, you recognize one another, you see one another. And who knows, maybe you didn't both love the movie. Maybe you didn't like both um, hate it, whatever. Maybe you had different reactions. But what's important in that moment is that you experience something together. And I think in this moment in time when we are so atomized as a culture, we're so stuck in um, in our own beings, our own perspectives. Um, we're so stuck in our own personal screens. Just knowing that we're experiencing something else with somebody else in a physical environment, I think it has a whole new array of meaning. That has always been the hope of the movie theater. 
You know, the hope has always been that maybe we can experience something together and maybe we can find some common ground where we can interact and we can talk and we can recognize that we are human beings in the same place experiencing art or even like garbage <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> The point is that we're experiencing it together and we've developed some kind of common ground. And that that is the hope of the theater. Scott, thanks for the call. Uh, time for one more call. We have Nancy with us in Grafton. Hi, Nancy. Hi. Well, when I was a little girl up in Marathon County on a farm, you know, in Edgar, our, our little hometown, they would have a movie and you could come and drive in there and you could park in the yard. It's a, and then they would show the movie on a side of a, a big uh, shed that was there. And it didn't cost anything, of course. You could just drive it. But, uh, yeah, you could sit in your car and you could see the movie that was on that shed. And uh, I don't know how many years it lasted. But when I was a little kid, I remember going watching a movie on a shed. Wow, Nancy, thank you so much for sharing that. That's a great memory. Uh, Jocelyn, I know outdoor movies are a small part of the, the movie theater industry, but maybe during the pandemic, did we see a boost in drive-ins? We sure did. And that was just like the most charming story. I would just like love to hear more of that. It's it's also it's a great reminder of um, all of the film culture that has always existed in addition to or beyond the movie theater. Um, there's all of these other places where people experience film that demonstrate how it's it's so integrated into American culture in so many ways. It's why it's like such an important thing to talk about, because it is it is fundamental to our experience as American citizens to um, to see film, whether it's in the theater or like charmingly on the side of a shed. And, you know, during during the pandemic, when a lot of theaters started to show things um, outdoors, that also became well, it had a certain charm to it because it had a sort of DIY feeling to it. Right. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I think theaters need to need to think about bringing back, you know, maybe we don't need all of these arcades in the lobby spaces. Maybe we don't need all of these um, awful like reclining chairs everywhere. Maybe we don't need um, entire dinners in the movie theater. Maybe what we need is the feeling that we're coming together as a community, doing something together, experiencing something together, and we all get to make of it what we will, right? We get to like dress up however we think Barbie would want us to dress up. We get to dress up um, however we think might um, might equate like an atom bomb theme for Oppenheimer. <laughs> we want to feel like we're all participating and we're all doing it together. And that that is like real magic. And maybe have some of that pink drizzled popcorn that I had in the theater <laughs> watching Barbie. It wasn't bad. It was pretty good. Um, I didn't have that. I should have had that. <laughs> it was good. Uh, Jocelyn, um, we just have a, oh, a minute and a half left or so, but tell us, what are you looking forward to in the theater? What movies uh, are on your radar right now? Yeah, there's a couple coming out that I am pretty excited for. So the one that I am probably the most excited about is Jonathan Glazer's new film, which is called The Zone of Interest. He is such a strange and talented and wonderful filmmaker. His last feature was Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson, that really wonderful, creepy science fiction film that's just so amazing in so many ways. Also, its own kind of spectacle, really, really gorgeously made, but um, very creative, very strange, very outlandish. So this film is actually um, a historical period piece, um, and it's about um, it's about some Germans who live right next door to um, to a concentration camp. Um, but it looks like 
it, it's a departure for Glazer, but it looks um, it looks really, really interesting and very chilly and very fascinating. Um, I'm also excited for Yorgos Lantimos's new film. Of course, he made The Favorite as well as some other um, some other films that are wonderfully weird. He's a member of the New Greek Weird um, kind of filmmaking mode, um, probably the most celebrated and uh, famous of all of them. And his new film, Poor Things, uh, is a kind of like it's, it's almost like a Frankenstein type story and it, it just looks really exciting. Emma Stone uh, gets resurrected. So she plays a resurrected corpse, which, which I'm just rather delighted by. So I'm very excited uh, for that one as well. Well, Jocelyn, it is always a delight to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's so wonderful to be with you. It's great to talk with you, Dean. Thank you. That was Jocelyn Sapeniak-Gillies, Director of Film Studies at UW-Milwaukee, talking with us about the movie industry and how theaters can keep people coming back to the seats.